The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by NIT. Okay, today we're going to talk about how the ecosystem for content creators is evolving. Joining us is Benjamin Grubbs, who's the founder of Next10 Ventures, which is a vertically integrated operating fund focused on incubating and accelerating new businesses in the creator economy. Prior to launching Next10 Ventures, Benjamin held leadership roles in digital content-centric companies, including Turner, Google, and YouTube. And in this episode, Benjamin's going to give us his view of the current landscape for content creators. Here's our interview with Benjamin Grubbs, the founder of Next10 Ventures. Benjamin, it's great to have a fellow Benjamin on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. First and foremost, do you go by Benjamin? Do you go by Ben? We can go with Ben. I've been called worse either way, but I'll <laughs> go with Ben and that way we can confuse everybody about which Ben they're talking to. So let's start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how did you end up founding Next10 Ventures? Sure. So I've spent a lot of time in the media business working with entrepreneurs and content creators uh, for the last five and a half years with Google, focused there, the YouTube business, working with content creators first in the Asia Pacific region, and for the last several years in a global role. So having exposure to content creators all around the world. But earlier in my career, I had worked at eBay and worked with a different set of entrepreneurs and those that were building brands and building businesses on the global eBay platform. So when I was in both Singapore and Hong Kong, I worked with folks that were in their early 20s and building a business focused on global trade and taking advantage of eBay at that time. This is the years 2004 to 2008, being one of the leading e-commerce destinations for buyers. So at first, it was just that exposure to entrepreneurs in that realm. And then I saw that again when I joined YouTube and just seeing a lot of young people coming onto the platform. And in some cases, just being very casual about it. They're artistically driven and they're telling stories and finding audiences and building communities around the content they're making. But there's others who were thinking about this in a more entrepreneurial manner. And we're seeing that you have this global platform that's expanding every single year. And there's a way to actually go and build a community, but also look at actually how you can build a sustainable business on that platform. 
So over the last several years, as I got more exposure to creators of this type, more of the entrepreneurial sort, I started thinking a lot about who were they going to for support and people to help them shape a business plan, shape a product plan. Or if you are trying to expand beyond the content that actually lives on a platform like YouTube and actually build out a business, who you turn to for financing. So that was some of the genesis of the idea around Next Ventures. And as I was talking to a lot of creators and I would ask them, how are they thinking about their next 10 years? Just to kind of see who actually has a vision for the future and is thinking out beyond the next month or the next year. From there, then those that actually have some of that idea for the future and are really trying to build something that is long lasting, I would get drawn into that and motivated by that. And so there was a role that I played at YouTube and how you support someone in growing on the YouTube platform. But I increasingly saw that there was a need for a broader kind of consulting role and business building role, but also I would say just as important, the need for capital to expand a team or build out products and services that are adjacent to what you're actually doing on the YouTube platform. That was the piece that kind of drove me into the creation of the company. Yeah, it seems like you came along at the perfect time where I guess in my head, I think of the pre-web media environment where journalists were creating all of the content. And then there was sort of the web 1.0 where companies were creating content potentially as a marketing vehicle, just building websites in general. And then we sort of got into this web 2.0 phase where user-generated content became something that was possible. And now we're it feels like we're almost in another phase where user-generated content is so prevalent that it's hard to distinguish the content you're creating and find a niche audience. It seems like there's just an incredible amount of content being produced. Talk to me a little bit about the overall landscape now that user-generated content is something people do as part of their daily habit. This is an interesting point that you're kind of drawing up or just the whole notion of calling it user-generated content. So I think in the early days of YouTube, there was this notion that it's not just people posting clips of Saturday Night Live on NBC. And that in the early days of YouTube actually was quite popular. So you could actually have a lot of television content and clips and highlights kind of on the YouTube platform. But then you also have people like Smosh and Ryan Higa and Shane Dawson and Phil DeFranco, who are still active today, but in those early days of YouTube, 2005, 2006, were also creating content actually on the platform. And I think today, when I look at what those folks are doing, in some ways, it's hard to distinguish what they're producing from what is actually getting produced by a television broadcast company. It's not actually a step change. And I think there's some production techniques that TV companies are now utilizing when content is actually getting produced. And so like James Corden and Carpool Karaoke, it's a segment on his late night TV show, but it's produced, I think, to travel well on YouTube. And it's using some of the same kind of production techniques that any content creator has been using actually on YouTube for years. So you have folks that I'd mentioned, Tick Like Smosh or Shane Dawson. So it can be producing content. And then I think in the advertising kind of community, maybe there's this notion of like, well, it's UGC, therefore it's not premium. Therefore, actually, I don't really want to advertise against it. I think we moved a long way from those days. And today, I think there's a lot of brands who lean into content being produced by creators who are native to platforms like YouTube. And they distinguish that from content that is being repurposed from a television broadcaster like NBC, who's putting SNL clips actually up on YouTube. So I think what that's afforded is 
there's a lot more money kind of going into the ecosystem and then into these native digital creators, which is then I think allowed them to make a career and, and make a full-time living out of what they're doing. So I think in the early days, it's like if you were spending time, you're doing it for fun. It was a hobby. You weren't really thinking, I think, so much about fame and fortune. I think it wasn't maybe even clear of where, where this is all going. Today, you have people that are growing up and they aspire to actually be a YouTuber as they get older. Like it's a profession or a career that young people actually want to have. And I think that comes from the sense that you can actually make a living doing this. There's an interesting point that you bring up, which is talking about who the consumer is from an advertising perspective. And I was just recording another podcast for another show yesterday where we were talking about the biggest trends in marketing. And the first one that I brought up is the shift towards customers that are digitally native. And the term millennial gets thrown around a ton. And that to me is the demarcation of somebody that was born or raised with a computer and the way that they consume media and what they consider authentic is very different. And now instead of partnering with shows that are high production value, brands seem to be looking for things that are low production value to make their products feel more viral, more authentic to the consumer. Talk to me about how you see the connection between brands, content creators, and how much like the production fidelity really plays into that. Sure, so I think it's also gone through phases. In some of the early days, you can kind of get into this whole notion of authenticity and brands actually wanted to lean into creators that actually have authenticity. And I think in the early days, I kind of spoke to someone actually having their channel or their kind of community and not really wanted to be seen to kind of sell out. So if I'm actually being sponsored, it's actually not kind of being authentic. Yeah. You're not creating your content for the love of the game. You're doing it for the money. Correct. And so what that drove was this whole thing of like, I'm getting paid, but I'm going to try to hide the fact that actually I'm getting paid and I'm actually working with a brand. Again, we've also moved past that. Now it's a lot more upfront. It's very clear in the start of the video. In some markets, the government actually mandates that you're actually stating if it is actually a paid placement, you need to be upfront about that. And you can't be so coy on that side. I think there's the other piece just around Brands actually wanted to lean into you know creators who create bespoke content. So you have that aspect, or you just have general product placement, or what you have is like a billboard or some kind of brand feature at the start, in the middle, or at the tail end of the video. So you have that coming from a lot of direct response marketers, and it's not so dissimilar, I think, to some of the same brands or companies that are advertising in the podcast space. So I think if you actually have a content format on a platform like YouTube that is conducive to that kind of direct response marketer, fantastic, because you can actually insert that stuff every single time you actually upload a video. And then for other kind of creatively driven folks on the bespoke side, there's an extent of like how much of that are you going to do? And if you're only uploading one original video a week, then you have to really be thinking like, is every time I'm actually uploading something new, is that going to be sponsored or paid for by a brand? which then I'm actually, I'm having to adhere to both that marketer, probably their creative agency or their media agency. So you got a lot of other people kind of in the middle and that might kind of take you away from what your original intent was, is just to be a creator. Like, I don't think there were folks that started off and thinking, oh, I want to go have a successful channel just so I can actually receive brand briefs and just respond to those, you know, every single week. 
You bring up an interesting point about the influences on content creators as they start to get into monetization. And we're going to get into monetization a little bit more. That's going to be our topic for tomorrow. Before we go down that rabbit hole, I want to talk more about just the overall landscape. I know that you have a background working at YouTube, but talk to me about how you view the various channels for content creators There's obviously video, YouTube being the center of the video universe, in my opinion. I'm obviously biased towards podcasts. I think that's a growing channel. What are the other channels and how do you sort of evaluate their size, their value? Talk to me about the overall landscape of content creation. It's pretty broad and it's very global. 80% of the consumption on YouTube actually occurs outside of the US. You have rapid growth coming in from markets like Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, Middle East and these markets. And what I was seeing, spending quite a lot of time actually in Asia, I was seeing in markets like Southeast Asia or in particular countries like Vietnam, you have young people kind of coming online, consuming video on their mobile phone, just I would say skipping the entire pay TV ecosystem altogether. And so outside of like state run television, if you want diversity in content, you go to YouTube and that's just second nature to them. So you have a huge audience demand for content. And I think it's kind of driven a lot of opportunity for content supply. And I think different to how you would actually kind of produce for TV and you're trying to actually pitch to a TV programmer for this, it's you just upload it and the audience is going to kind of show you or point you in the direction of like, does this resonate or not? And if it does, then you keep doing it. I feel like the secret there is basically talking about a volume game is you start throwing things against the wall and you see what sticks. And then when you see that you're getting traction, you just produce a bunch more of that type of content. Is that what you're seeing? There is that aspect. So there's one side, which is just the global aspect of the platform. Mm -hmm. Here in the US, if you're kind of producing for the linear television market, you're generally kind of producing for the US market, US audiences, and then you have like an international kind of syndication. I think with YouTube, you're global from the get-go. And you might already start to see that your audience actually outside the U.S. far outstrips the audience you actually have in the U.S. market. And that kind of, it creates challenges, but also opportunities and how you want to recognize that and lean into it. I think just where there's a lot of growth and high growth actually on the platform is happening outside the U.S. So that's one side just to kind of point out is just the, the geographic spread of the platform. Then I think in terms of like content verticals, the kids market has been pretty robust for years. I've seen this. I have three kids. My oldest is nine and he's been on YouTube for a number of years and just watching him kind of grow up and then my two daughters as well. So they come online at a young age. They have control over what they actually want to watch. They start to understand kind of channels and creators and then ask me for them. So then I'm subscribing to channels and kind of keep them in a feed and it's easier for me to find them the next time that actually they're looking for that content. I'm also able to kind of screen it and go through that aspect. But I think the other side is outside of kids, you have robust markets in gaming and music. But then you get into a lot of like education, how to, fashion, beauty, sports and news. And so there's a lot of content categories there. There's a lot of different areas to delve into. And those are also going to vary, I think, by country and what their consumption is. But something that you were kind of mentioning before, just I think around the commercialization side, I also think on the content creation piece is are you developing formats? Are you making formats that are sustainable? Or is it you're doing comedy sketches and every single time you're uploaded a video, it's a brand new comedy sketch. Like the demands of what creators actually put into the platform is not all equal. That's just another aspect to point out. So you bring up a couple different interesting points. First off, for content creators that are thinking about what the focus of their channel is, you brought up variables including age, 
what is the category of content? Are you going to be in lifestyle, health and wellness? Are you going to be in education? What's the type of fidelity? Are you producing videos? Are you producing audio? Are you producing written content? And then the last thing you brought up was format, right? Are you producing a type of content that is repeatable? Can you be consistent? That's actually one of the things that I've seen with podcasting is that we have a couple different formats of content, but by theming things, we'll do a week on a specific topic or we'll do a couple of episodes in a row like this episode where we're going to talk about video and about content creation. And people really gravitate towards that structure and even publishing at the same time. So I think those are important keys for people that are thinking about getting into content creation or for brands that are starting to produce content for themselves. Those are some great variables to think about. Well, the one piece I just want to throw in, over the time that I was actually with the company, I saw pretty rapid growth in adoption of the platform, consumption of the platform. I mean, today is nearing 2 billion monthly active users. And the other piece I saw over the time I was with the company is that the rate at which people actually come to YouTube, like the number of days per month is increased quite a bit. Like when I started back in 2012, I think it was less than 10 times a month is, you know, someone actually coming to YouTube. So there is a correlation to folks that are actually producing content on a more frequent basis. So maybe even down to uploading new content every day that does align a little bit with people who are coming to the platform more often or every single day. And I think then to get into content formats that are topical news or just vlog type content of chronicling my life. And if you're creating content that is resonating with that audience, you have an audience there that is actually looking to tune in every single day. And I think for some, it can go well, but then it also gets to a point of yeah, burnout. It's not deemed sustainable anymore or it's just not a creative drive, I think, for the person kind of behind it. So you need to move and adapt. And I think with other creative formats, if you're producing for television, you're producing seasons and you produce like 26 episodes and that was your season. Now a lot of shows are 10 episodes. So you have writers that then need to kind of create a story arc for 10 episodes and produce that. I think for someone actually on YouTube, if you're producing daily, you know, 365 episodes, and these are videos that will last like 10 to 15 minutes. So not far off from like a half hour TV show. But I think also different is they don't have a writer's room. A lot of this is, you know, it's the content creator. It's one person who's really kind of driving the ideation. So I would say, I think for new people kind of coming in, it's like, think about actually what you're trying to make and think about sustainability early on and not wait till that becomes a problem and then have to grapple with it. I'll talk a little bit about my experience here because I've definitely felt that where Working as a podcast content creator, initially, I said I was going to take a month to three months to try to validate that I could build an audience, that people would be interested in my content. And I didn't really think about what the formats were or over the long haul, how I would be building in content creation into my daily schedule. And fortunately for me, the content creation process, and I was able to quickly find an audience and that was growing at a pace that I felt good about. After my first quarter of content production, I definitely felt a stress of I wasn't winging it anymore. I needed to build in processes and infrastructure and find support mechanisms, right? Find freelancers and build a team to help me with the content production. And I do think that that's great advice for people that are getting into the content production game, that thinking about the systems that you're going to set up to be able to consistently create content So it doesn't require you to feel the pressure of deadlines of content production every day. I absolutely 100% agree with that. 
just going back to the topic of the evolution of the space, mm -hmm. there's this other side of just like what goes into producing content for a platform like YouTube. We touched earlier kind of on the monetization aspect and the early days, there was this sense of like, I don't really want to be seen so much to being sponsored actually by a company and we've moved well past that. But the other piece I remember hearing a lot in when I started working at YouTube from creators was the notion of, I need to hold on to the role of editing. And if I think about authenticity and being authentic to my audience, I represent that or demonstrate or execute that actually through the editing. And editing is me kind of making sure that my voice is consistent and it is clear. And like as we would host events, a lot of this for me was actually in Asia, but we'd have a lot of US-based creators actually come to the region and talk at these events. And I would hear this point a lot. But the other side is like when you say that, what you're also agreeing to is that like five, six hours of your day is actually going into this role of post-production. And if you're actually uploading every single day and you're spending, let's say, five, six hours in production and then another five, six hours in post-production, you also need to sleep. And then if you're turning around and then doing that the next day, it's a grind. And I used to ask folks, like, have you thought actually about bringing on an editor? And it's like, nah, I don't know, because this is my voice and the audience has kind of come to expect the content I produce like in a certain way. And I don't know it that someone else can kind of do it or... I brought someone on and I just felt like it's faster that I just kind of do it myself. And so then you're not really finding that release where you can actually get time back in your day. But then there's other folks I was finding that were kind of coming to the platform over the last several years and did not start in the late 2000s, but more I'd say like 2013, 2014 timeframe. And what I noticed was they had no allegiance or affection to the role of editing. And it was like, if I can actually get someone to actually do that, fantastic. So I can spend my time doing other things. So it was something I was just observing was just that evolution of the space and also just the generational mentality. And so like the first generation was, I do everything. And then some of this later generation was kind of understanding, I think, the different parts and where your strengths are. And if you need to bring in other people and start to form that team earlier on, then go and do that. Yeah, I found myself probably closer to the second generation, but still wanting to maintain editorial control without having to do the hardcore manipulation of content, you know, the real content editing. Personally, I have an editor who I've worked with on this show since day one. He is wonderful. He's listening to this right now. Panos, thank you very much. And my recommendation for content creators is start with an editor early and get them to understand what you consider to be your voice and then maintain editorial control, you know, have them do an edit and then review the content and make sure that it's up to your standards and continually communicate with your editor to make sure that they're delivering on your vision. And I think that's a great place for us to stop for today. A couple of the things just to recap that we've covered the various different things you need to think about in terms of finding your audience, age, format, channel, topics, but also thinking about the impact that being a content creator can have on your life. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Benjamin Grubbs for joining us in part two of our interview, which we'll publish tomorrow. Ben is going to walk us through a deeper dive to the various ways that content businesses can monetize their efforts. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Benjamin, you can click on his bio in our show notes, or you can visit his website, which is next10ventures.com, N-E-X-T-1-0-ventures.com. 
in our show notes or reach out or reach out on Twitter or LinkedIn. My company handle is Ben J. Shap LLC. My personal handle is Ben J. Shap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to part two of our interview with Benjamin Grubbs from Next 10 Ventures, we've got some great episodes lined up for the next few weeks. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.